0: Hello, you're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in the intellectual discipleship of the church and civilization generally. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal Pietas, to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceroniansociety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N. S-O-C-I-E-T-Y dot org. You can also learn about our upcoming conference in Plano, Texas, February 29th through March 2nd, 2024. Paper and panel proposals are due September 1st, 2023. Head over to our website to learn more. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and this is part two of James Patterson's conversation with Glenn Moots and the subject of Christian nationalism.
1: Uh, one of the... Um... Uh, the features of Christian nationalism that has paralleled uh, my uh, observations uh, of something, a very similar development on my side of the denominational divide, something called Catholic Integralism. Um, we can talk about that in a minute, but it uh, has been that uh, they confront uh, the reality uh, that uh, does not square with the ideal theory they establish and when confronted uh, respond with, well, we'll just use force until it works uh, the way that we're supposed to. And what's strange is that uh, in both cases where force has been applied, I'd say there has not been much success. Rather, there's been a lot of failure, Uh, and I was wondering since I know this to be how the church uh, uh, among the Catholics responded, which was to back away um, it seems like the magisterial Protestants were already well aware that it doesn't work that great because they were the ones originally subject to force uh, by uh, Catholic uh, uh, civil magistrates, you referred to Mary many times there, she was one of those civil magistrates, right?
2: Yeah, right. Mary, Mary the first. There's a lot of Marys floating around in that period. So, Mary Tudor, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary the first. Um, so this is this. this she became uh, uh, the ruler of England after Edward. So Edward took over from Henry, and and Henry uh, was not terribly interested in. Um, reforming the church. I mean, he originally was an opponent of Luther, which earned him the title defender of the faith, which I I feel like every time there's a coronation and they call the English monarch the defender of the faith, they're trolling the pope, right? Because he's <laughs> he's also he's the the faith that he's defending is the Protestant faith and I think Charles was still charged with doing that. There's some controversy over whether you know how he was going to you know handle that or they're going to change the ceremony or whatever, but um but Edward was very interested in reforming the church. Uh, Henry just sort of tolerated it, I think, um, and let Cranmer, you know, do what Cranmer did, including, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, right, which is just such a wonderful contribution to the church and to civilization generally. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that's right, and I, I think, I think that made them sensitive to questions of power and authority. Like you said, and even though you did see them sometimes say, "Oh, you know, this is absolutely wrong," when they were on the outs, and then they went and got into power and were more willing to do some of those things, or or at least to to be less you know less critical than they would have been before. Um, I think they were still pretty consistent. I I think I think I think the conversation whether they were in or out of power. Was around those questions of authority and worrying about it being abused as well as as well as not crossing lines of ecclesiastical and civil authority in an imprudent or uh, unbiblical or um, unprecedented way how's that?
1: yeah the uh, you know the the Catholic in me is wanting to say, well, you know they what about priest holes the oath of supremacy but i'm also remembering that the vatican uh called for the unseating of elizabeth the first. uh so right. you know high high drama you know uh, uh things got ratcheted up a lot uh, but when the project came across the atlantic to the united states you had the sort of like uh low intensity establishment of southern and mid atlantic states and the high intensity ones and in, uh New England states, and the use of coercion there was like oddly ineffective, especially against like the baptists uh you know and the uh, and uh and their struggle right did you just come up with that high intensity low intensity uh yeah uh yes i like that oh you're uh thank you okay so, yeah. <laughs> this this isn't just a podcast this is this is this is a, work- a workshop
2: it's a <laughs> Yeah, let's see if we'll
1: get APSA. It started up. here. We're going to have a co-author. It's going to win the two thousand twenty-four. <laughs> uh, here, what, oh, I put the book away. A uh, uh, book of the year, the scientific study of religion. I, I can see it coming. We could always become the Christianity Today book of the year
2: too. Oh well, I would say the odds <laughs> odds of that happening are
1: as are as slim as the APSA. The Commonweal book of the year. <sighs> Anywho. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you would abandon public life if that were to happen to you. You know, I, I wrote,
2: uh, <laughs> I I wrote a, a chapter on the colonial establishments for Owen Anderson, Michael
1: Breidenbach's uh, Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment,
2: and
1: Michael Breidenbach being a uh, colleague of mine and an excellent, excellent scholar. Right, And we're all part of the uh, James Madison
2: Mafia. right. I was going to say <laughs> I was going to say society first, then Mafia, but we should just go <laughs> st- straight straight to the mafia part. Yeah, you know. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I wrote it on in, the, in there, and then also uh, uh, Mark uh, Hall and Dan Dreisbach did
1: Mark uh, Hall also in the Mafia.: Yep, yep, yep. And Has Dreisbach uh, is, done a uh, JMP Dan? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. It's almost like he doesn't
2: have to. It would be shocking if he wasn't.
1: Yeah. Honorary, if not official.
2: Yeah, definitely. So so Mark and Dan did a volume on Great Christian Jurists. Uh, he did a chapter on John Cotton and Roger Williams in there. So the point of this is not it's not self-promotion. The point is to say that having uh, having focused on what I think was the most important theoretical debate about establishment between Williams and Cotton, and having looked at some of the historical particulars of those establishments, though I'm not an historian nor do I play one on TV.
1: Um,
2: I think that the the reason we have toleration in America primarily, and I'll just, I'll just say, even before I say this, that Andrew Murphy said this 20 years ago, Andrew's now at Michigan, which I'm really, really, really happy about in, in the political science department, um, is that this was, I think, this the, the debate about toleration really did not move things in the direction of toleration. I think that toleration was moved largely by questions of expedience. And that's really important because if it was determined by rulers in the magisterial tradition that it was prudent to have toleration leading increasingly toward religious liberty, then toleration and liberty is not something we should discount. We we might say on grounds of principle, we think it would be better for people to have Something that looks more like establishment, all right? And I'm going to leave that pretty vague because that comes down to questions of localism and federalism and prudence and all the rest. But you could say, well, in principle, we may like this, but prudence is also a principle. And you can also refuse to do something, and it doesn't make you a squish normie. It means that you understand that politics is the art of the possible. And as Althusius says in his conclusion on ecclesiastical administration, um, he says, look, if you try to do what I'm recommending here, and all you're going to do is sow, sow sedition and discord, don't do it. Uh, so you have to recognize the the importance of the polity. Uh, that gets back to constitutionalism, questions of human flourishing, et cetera, et cetera. And again, you're always talking around those questions of, you know, what, what is, what is best, uh, under the, under the circumstances, because remember, circumstances themselves are the work of God, that's providence.
1: Yeah, so the, uh, rather than, um, looking to force, right, this idea that the magic comes from the exercise of unilateral power, by a civil magistrate, what you use is virtue, right? That's what prudence is for the statesman. Uh, or stateswoman. Uh is that <laughs> that's so ungainly. Uh, but uh <laughs> uh and statesperson. Also, statesperson. Um, oh that's all that's worse. States human. Uh, that species is Glenn, you're cancelled. The uh <laughs> the so the uh so that that approach. Uh, thereby requires the uh, the t- the use of prudence. Uh, it's not uh, sufficient to uh, expect a a uh, a prince to possess such prudence. In fact, to exercise prudence would be to expect a prince not to possess it, and therefore you're back to the question of institutions, uh, institutions that have public legitimacy uh, and uh, political support from. Uh, uh, a wide range of people and uh, therefore can exercise in good faith, uh, the compromise uh, where there is so much disagreement. And this is the, uh, the arrival uh, at the, at first what's called the, I guess the Protestant hegemony. It's a uh, Daryl Hart's description in which uh, denomin- all the Protestants agree in the United States that nobody gets an establishment uh, and especially the Catholics, and then eventually the mormons uh, and then there's a kind of radiating outward after that in which uh, other groups are then included in the and so you end up with things like the judeo Christian consensus uh, a, as a term uh, and uh, and what holds the whole thing together is that nobody gets uh, a state sponsorship uh, and as it turns out that 's a pretty stable Uh, way of doing things, so there's no state favoritism, but it's also the opposite of what uh, uh, Stephen Wolf says, (laughs)
2: right? (laughs) Well, yeah, I I, I mean, I I don't, you know, Stephen's very smart, and I don't know, you know, between the time that he wrote this and now, I don't know, You know, if you were to put that to him and say, hey, have you abandoned uh, institutions or have you abandoned constitutionalism? Uh, You know, I'm I'm always somebody who wants to stand up for an author when somebody says, you know, for example, you've heard the criticisms of Locke. You know, well, Locke doesn't say there are families in the state of nature and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And you think, well, look, uh, you can only do one thing at a time, and a good writer doesn't get distracted by things. And so if, if Stephen wants to say, no, I don't really care about institutions, I want to do things not only, you know, I want to do things like through the sheer force of will or personality or, or, um, um, you know, extra-constitutional, uh, 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 you know, means or whatever. I, I'm going to let him, you know, decide how he would handle that if you put it to him today relative to when he wrote the book, and I don't know, maybe he wants to elaborate on it more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, I, I just don't think, you know, it's prudent for us to not... Um realize what is or is not possible without risking the polity itself. does that make sense
1: yeah yeah that's right uh that's kind of what I was going for and uh i don't i wasn't trying to uh put you in um the position of having to speak for stephen it's It's more that um uh, the the extra it's the the irony of exercising prudence the way that's outlined for magisterial Protestants as he's interpreted it is to do the opposite of what he recommends. Uh, yeah, and I think there's something else. Do you, you mind if I go? For, it's, yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, is I think one of the things, one of the problems here is that we've created a kind of false dichotomy between things that are voluntary and things that are involuntary. And so whenever the state, quote unquote, and if you know, you know, the libertarian literature, right, it's, it's you know, the individual versus the state. Literally um, nothing else exists. Right, right. It's the individual yeah. or it's the state. Now, you know, some of the more sophisticated... Uh, folks in that world, you know, they'll start to talk about civil society and voluntary association right. ag- and things that. like that, right? But, but at the end, in the end, a lot of these just come down to sort of, you know, as Bentham said, you know, you just they're just sort of an aggregate of of individuals, and so it turns out the individuals don't, you know, they they, they want to avoid that of having the individuals just become, you know, lost in the associations, and so. And so they might talk about associations, but at the end of the day, the anthropology and what I mean by that is just understanding of human nature is very thin. And and so um, you know one way to 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 think about this is to start talking about it in terms of like parents and children. But then of course the reply to that is well the state is not is not a parent. And and look I get that, but the larger point is that when you when you think about, you know, human behavior and how people make decisions, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not drifting into, you know, something in uh, psychology or sociology or something like that, but, uh, you know, people, uh, this goes back to Plato, right? I mean, people take cues. And um, if you close things, if things are closed until noon, uh, you know, people have to ask themselves, well, well what's who, What's going on on Sunday before noon, right? Like, what would we be encouraging through that and what sort of thing? It's not that we're discouraging people from going out to eat on Sunday morning. Like, that's a bad thing. We're encouraging them to go to church, which is a good thing. Uh, so, you know, could that influence some people to go to church? Well, according to the study... Uh, it, the, in the uh, deaths of despair were related to the Blue Laws, the implication being that when, when people were more involved in church, they were less likely to succumb to deaths of despair. Now, that seems like an interesting discussion worth having around the question of human flourishing. And if you just, you know, turn this into, well, this state is telling us what individuals can do on Sunday morning, I have rights. It seems to me that that discourse has not led to more freedom in America. It's actually led to less because now the the idea of rights has just become a way to actually, at the end of the day, get a bigger and bigger state, especially a federal state, as the uh, rights in the Bill of Rights and uh, all of the uh, shadows and penumbra's therein uh, have been, um, uh, you know, uh, become a tool
1: after incorporation to actually make people less free. The uh, paper I think we're talking about here is called Opiates of the Masses, Deaths of Despair and the Decline of American Religion by Tyler Giles, Daniel M. Hungerman, and Tamar Ostrom. Um, and the abstract says, in recent decades, death rates from poisoning, suicides, and alcoholic liver disease have dramatically increased in the United States. We show that these deaths of despair began to increase relative to trend in the early 1990s, that this increase was preceded by a decline in religious participation, and that both trends were driven by middle-aged white Americans using repeals of blue laws as a shock to religiosity. We confirm that religious practice has significant effects on these mortality rates, our findings show that social factors, such as organized religion, can play an important role in understanding deaths of despair. And otherwise, in other words, uh, the movie Footloose is why your uncle is an alcoholic. <laughs> That's uh, that last part I added. Um,
2: <laughs> I uh, I figured, yeah. <laughs> but, well, and you and you you mentioned Tim Carney's book earlier. You know what struck me in uh, listening to Carney's book. Is he talks about the way in which, and and this is the kind of you know diminishing of of the church, which I'm, I'm not fond of, but but just to think of it as an organization, in which people find community and help and things like that, and the church is so much more than that, but he he says that this is the lowest cost, of entry, uh, place in
1: America, right? Yeah, uh, w- I've. You know, uh, wrestled with this problem uh, a little bit myself uh, in a review for Sorab Amari's book, The Unbroken Thread. I talked about how a lot of these rules um, are selectively enforced in places where there are religious minorities that do not observe the same Sabbath. So there were a lot of shakedowns of Jewish business uh, leaders who then had to essentially incur a tax to hire what was called the house goy that operated the business on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. And now that we have a large number of Muslims living in this country, I guess we'll need a uh, uh, a house haram. I don't know. <laughs> it could work on Fridays. I, uh, so it gets complicated. But this is when you devolve the question to local communities, right? Right, I I think
2: that's right, and you know I think I think Mark has suggested, you know, having a, Mark Mark David Hall, yeah, has yeah. suggested that you could have Friday, Saturday, or Sunday as it does it Sabbath. Now I understand, you know, I'm going to be an advocate for Sunday, and I'm going to be an advocate for that on on different fronts, and I think this gets back to the magisterial point, Stephen's point, which is. Um, I I guess I'll just ask the question this way, and and this is where, again, I I don't just want to turn the church into an association, and I don't just want to promote religiosity as a good. Um, But if you were to say to me, look, we can have things as they are right now, or we can have some acknowledgement of the importance of worship and give people fewer reasons I might say, well, you know, we can do it like we did it in 1950, um, or I don't know, maybe there's another way. Maybe, maybe there's a way, and I'm thinking to like the Scotus accommodation of the, the postal carrier, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe there's a new way to think about this, um, and maybe there's a way, and this would be my ideal where we're advancing the Christian faith, and we're not. We're not entirely neutral, but to the point of both prudence and a certain amount of pragmatism, we're able to accommodate uh, these other faiths, too, insofar as we want to keep the integrity of the polity and we don't want to encourage, you know, sedition and tumult, as Elthusius would say.
1: Well... On that optimistic note, do you have uh, any, anything coming out, anything for the listeners to search out uh, if they're hungry for more moots? <laughs>
2: uh, I've got some pieces at Law and Liberty. I just had my first piece at American Reformer go up. I reviewed Mark's book on the role of Christians in advancing liberty and equality at um, the Acton uh, is it Religion and Liberty? That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, um, I will be having some kind of occasional review pieces coming out um, probably in the next month. And then I've got some other things that I'm kind of, you know, chipping away on, but there's no point in really talking about those until they're, you know, closer to, um,
1: you know, closer to publication. You heard it here, folks. There's more moots. Uh, it, you know what, Glenn? It, oh, so Public for those Discourse,
2: you... too. Sorry, Public Discourse. My review of oh, yeah. Stephen's book, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, if you couldn't tell, Glenn and I are have uh, been friends for a long time. So this was a slightly less structured podcast <laughs> than maybe it should have been. But uh, I hope everybody uh, learned a lot. Glenn's definitely one of the people that you want to look to for a measured uh, and even sympathetic reading of Christian nationalism rather than the hair-pulling uh, house on fire uh, kind of stuff that you get um, thank you so much for appearing on The Sower, Glenn thanks, James it's uh, it's always great to spend time with you albeit, you know, virtually and uh, keep up the good work man, we did it we got this podcast done it only took seven months <laughs> 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 bye see ya